In this episode, we speak with Matt Schwartz, co-founder and CEO of Afresh. Afresh is on a mission to reduce food waste globally by transforming the fresh food supply chain. The company builds AI-powered solutions that meet fresh food's many challenges to optimize grocery retail forecasting, ordering, and operations. Matt co-founded Afresh in 2016 while pursuing his MBA at Stanford. He began his career as a consultant with Bain & Company. Afresh has raised approximately $150 million and is backed by Insight Partners, Spark Capital, Walter Robb, and other notable investors. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Where I'd like to start off is it seems like your company is on its journey at the right time, meaning there's tremendous tailwinds towards better eating, fresh foods, non-processed foods. And mm-hmm. so I can imagine retail stores and other distribution channels are all focused on fresh. Tell us a little bit about the solutions you provide. First off, I can't agree more with the overall theme that you put out there. People increasingly want to eat fresh food. Fresh food is more experiential, it's healthier. And as a result, these businesses that purvey food are increasing the percentage of square footage or overall volume they allocate to fresh over processed food alternatives. So 100% agree there. The solutions that we provide basically sit on top of that trend. The big thesis that we had was that there's this hidden divide in retail, which is the industry we serve, in that there are processed foods that come in a box and have a barcode and last a very long time. And then there are these fresh foods like a head of broccoli, a salmon filet, a donut that might not have that barcode. They're very perishable, could have production steps in store and more. So the solutions that we built are fresh first. We're doing things like store ordering and replenishment inventory management, and more that's specialized for fresh food. And that begets massive reductions in food waste and also fresher product for end customers. The problems you are solving sound daunting to someone particularly outside the industry. Just the thought of being in charge of the time it takes and the manner in which a good is shipped from point A to point B. And and sometimes those distances are pretty far. Obviously, there's a lot of people within the supply chain making this happen. Can you get a little bit more granular into how your software actually accomplishes what it set out to do? At the end of the day, the thing that our system is first doing is trying to optimize how many, let's just say bananas for now, how many bananas should get ordered into every grocery store every day to minimize waste and maximize profit. So if you think about what goes into ordering the perfect number of bananas, The way that that used to be done is a produce manager in a store would use his or her judgment to say, how many bananas am I going to sell? How many bananas do I have today? To your point, what's the timing of when I order it? How long it's going to take for the next truck to come in? How big is the shelf display? What's the perishability of the banana? And they would basically make an informed guess 
on how many they needed to have to fill the shelf, but not order too much and drive waste. The way that our system works is we are using AI to optimize that decision. So we get billions and billions of data points from historical sales, historical shipments, pricing, promotion, external events like weather, all these things that influence the demand for bananas. And then critically, a big belief of ours is that we can't just fully allow the AI to make that decision alone because there's a lot of things in the real world that are not observed or not recorded accurately in a digital environment. So do the bananas come in moldy? Was there a mispick at the DC that caused them to bring in 28 pounds instead of 30 pounds in a case? There's a million things like this that can deprecate the accuracy of what's happening in the digital world. And so critically, what we then do is we take that AI and we built a workflow on an iPad at first that the produce manager uses every day to go about his or her workflow. And it's basically a team effort between the person in the store and the AI on the back end to generate that perfect order for bananas, but then also for the other thousand items that are in that produce department every day. Got it. So you're not actually speeding up the time of shipping. It's just simply ordering the right amounts at the right time. Exactly. It's a really subtle thing. It's an invisible change. It's a decision that's being optimized. But the manifestation of a better decision actually is a better physical product. So if a grocer overordered historically, you can look at these photos of the back rooms of the grocery store, which you don't ever see as a shopper, but they're full to the ceiling with product because they overorder to make sure they don't run out of food. When we come in with these optimized decisions, then the back rooms get really light, but the shelf is still full. And the end result of that is that that banana didn't sit for two days in the back before it made it to the shelf. And those days of added freshness are given back to the shopper. And so even though it's an invisible decision that's being optimized, and it's not something like a truck moving faster, it has these really material benefits to the business and to the end consumer. You know, it's interesting. I'm sure many people in the industry probably observed this problem happening with food wastage. What made you decide to tackle this problem? And I guess what made you think you could do it? Those may be two different questions. But on the first one, I had worked in food and the theme about fresh driving the future of food was something that I deeply believed. I also studied it in parallel to getting my business degree at Stanford. And so I had this deep conviction that fresh food was the most strategic category and driving the future of what we eat. At the same time, we observed that most, if not all of the technology that had been built for food and food retail was built for that processed food. And the reason for that is that the technology companies that existed in retail, it made more sense for them to build one size fits all software that would work for my sweater or my watch or the car parts at an auto zone or something like that. Anything that comes in a box and has a barcode, you can build one size fits all across many retail industries. They did not, as a result, specialize in fresh. So the systems wouldn't work as effectively or even in any cases at all in fresh. And so we came at it from the side and said, no, we are betting on fresh and we're going to double down on product optimization for those categories. And I think that that specialization enabled us to pivot into the second part of your question even though we may have been less experienced as first-time founders or as a management team, 
that ruthless focus on fresh enabled us to build things that were super effective and beat out that competition. Now, your background is in consulting. How did that play into how you think about your business, how you went about starting and building the business? Consultants are known for being very analytical. Can you tell us how it influenced your approach? Yeah, I think my co-founders and sometimes people on my team joke that I just speak in two by twos, which uh, you know they think is an insult, but I still take as a compliment. <laughs> so I'm still a recovering consultant. I think Bain in particular, where I worked, I feel was an incredible initial launchpad for me in my career. It gave me a business toolkit really quickly and it gave me the belief that any business problem was tractable. I also did a secondment outside of Bain to be the first employee or first extern at a company called Simple Mills, which does almond flour baking mixes. And that's where I really cut my teeth at first in entrepreneurship. I formulated a frosting because they had nobody else to do it. I went to every Whole Foods in Southern California and tried to get more shelf space for our product. I ran our contract manufacturing and our supply chain at the, this company. So I got to do a bunch of stuff. So I had the Bain toolkit that was analytical and you know, solved business problems. But then I got this entrepreneurial opportunity to run a bunch of stuff with no experience. And I think when you combine those two things, you get this belief that you can do anything. It seems like you have an all-star cast of investors who have very relevant experience in the field of food and fresh food. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about them and, and maybe how you came to know them and work with them? So yeah, right now we have the benefit of having Walter Robb, the former CEO of Whole Foods, and James McCann, the former CEO of Ahold USA and Tesco and Carrefour, so many grocery chains in the US and Europe as investors and board members. And to an outsider, it might look like, wow, they must have done something magical to get these folks on board. I think in practice, it was a really iterative process where former grocery executives, even if they're now investing, are not the most credulous people. It's not like immediately bought in on what we're doing. In fact, James McCann, the former CEO of Ahold, so it's a conglomerate of about 1,600 stores in the US, when he first met me, didn't really believe we could do what I was saying we could do. And he, as a hobby, flies little planes. And so he actually eventually, through me convincing him, got on a plane and went to visit stores that were using our system. And it was seeing this solution in action and hearing the testimonials of the end users of the produce managers at first in the stores eventually convinced them to get on board. So we had to earn their belief, I'd say. What do you think, you know, now as you're scaling, you've raised a fair amount of capital, I think close to like 150 million in total, if I'm not mistaken. What challenges are you dealing with now? Where, where are you deploying most of the capital towards? We're deploying the capital towards scale across a number of different dimensions. So one of them is to scale and store count. We grew from being in a couple hundred stores at the beginning of last year to being in over 3,000 now. So just a remarkable amount of growth when it comes to sheer amount of product that our system is ordering and providing recommendations against. If you look at the numbers, it's something like 7-ish percent of the produce sold through supermarkets in America is being ordered through our system today. So there was one element of deploying capital to be able to handle the sheer amount of scale that we cover. The next piece is increasing the coverage of different fresh categories. So we cut our teeth in produce, but are expanding into meat and seafood and deli products and baked goods and everything that you might find around the edge of a grocery store. That's where all the fresh food is. So we're covering all of that. And then 
Finally, we're also growing up the supply chain. So if our first product optimizes store level ordering, we want to jointly optimize distribution center level and truckload level order quantities at the same time. And actually, there's a fourth dimension, which is planting the early seeds internationally as well. Got it. We talked about your investors and how they're highly relevant to your industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about the value that they've brought to you beyond simply financial capital? Absolutely. I think they, of course, have been able to connect us to various constituents within the industry. So from a commercial perspective, having a set of board members that understand an industry is valuable in that it's a small little world. And so they enabled us to get some introductions and things like that that have been invaluable. The second piece I would say, which in some cases I think can be dismissed by entrepreneurs or founders is the advice component. And a surprising part of that for me actually wasn't even just advice about the grocery industry, but I think that stellar grocery executives like Walter and James are also just really great executives generally. And so even though I'm running a tech company and they ran grocery businesses, things around management, accountability, performance, and other, even my personal development as a leader, they've provided really remarkable and great advice on how to do all of those things better and better. So some combination of commercial benefit with also the advice. Is there one key piece of advice that maybe you tuck in and you do think about quite often? Is there a guiding principle, whether it has to do with management or mm. execution or strategy? Is there something yeah. that kind of comes to mind? I think it's more of a long tail of just a lot of different pieces of advice. But I think one that was really valuable for me is something around task-specific maturity that one of these investors helped me understand when it came to management. So the idea that different people have different levels of expertise in different domains, and you want to match your management style to that specific direct reports level of task-specific maturity. So if someone is an expert on something, you can just let them run and maybe provide some coaching or some light guardrails. This is doing something for the very first time and is not an expert, then you might more prescriptive and provide much more frequent checkpoints and things like that. So that's something that I think is fairly straightforward or something you might be able to pick up in your own management book. But when you're hearing about an executive having done that for a chief merchant or a COO of a multi-hundred thousand person organization or something like that, then you start to understand how to really apply things like that in practice. So that'd be one example. Got it. And I'm curious, you know, sometimes I ask this of founders I talk to that are of a younger generation, not that much younger, but younger. Did you show signs of entrepreneurship early on in your life? That's an interesting question. I actually haven't reflected on that. I think the answer is no. I was never the kid that set up the lemonade shop or that whatever did the digital equivalent of that. I think that I always had really big ambition, although that was activated much later in my life. And I think maybe more so the thing for me that enabled the detachment from reality or belief that I could do these things comes probably from my mom who, in a, maybe not typical, but just kind of in a way, just injected all of that into me and really made me believe that I could do anything when I grew up to the nth degree. <laughs> That's awesome. So we're coming up on time. I have two last questions that I typically end our conversations with. One is 
Can you tell us about a book or a movie that has had a, an impact on you? Yes. So this book is, again, maybe this gives you a little bit of a read into my psyche, but The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I think Stephen Covey has it figured out when it comes to just life generally and the principles to living a good life professionally, personally, socially, whatever it might be. And I actually read or try to reread that book every couple of years and take away a different lesson from it and basically have the different habits like ingrained in the inside of my skull. So that has been a really formative book for me. Well, it served you well to date. So last question, can you tell us about a person that you admire? It could be in any field or domain. Being honest, you know, the, the one I used to respond to very immediately, I think, but obviously has been more bubbled in controversy recently was Elon Musk. I think that he's been an inspiration for me in the past and the idea that you can drive for-profit social impact businesses. So what he did and has done with Tesla to electrify cars or to do things like reusable rockets with the hope of mitigating existential risk on earth for people, I think are really amazing things. And I've thought about myself in a lot of ways as wanting to do things like that for food or for health and find ways to drive for-profit social impact businesses. I think that Stylistically, I'm now thinking through what kind of leader I want to be in addition to what kind of companies I want to start. But that would have been the traditional answer I would give there. Got it. Well, that about wraps it up. This has been a great conversation. And I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. 